Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Eric Riven is here, and welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. Just a reminder, while Amazon Prime Days are over, you can still do your shopping on Amazon in a pinch. Go to my website, mostnotorious.com, and click my Amazon link. It's no extra cost to you, and you can still get whatever stuff you need, including the book we are about to hear about. All right, on to the episode. I am thrilled to have with me today Margalite Fox. She is a retired senior writer at the New York Times and the author of three books, one of which, of course, she will be telling us all about today. The title of that book is Conan Doyle for the Defense, The True Story of a Sensational British Murder, A Quest for Justice, and the World's Most Famous Detective Writer. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So Conan Doyle, the creator of arguably the most famous fictional detective in history, Sherlock Holmes, plays an integral role in this story. Are you a Sherlock Holmes fan? Well, I read the stories growing up as I hope most people do. I can dream anyway. But I would not call myself a fan as knowledgeable as, let's say, the great folks at Baker Street Irregulars. So uh, I was more of a passive fan going into this story. So how did you learn about this story, and what prompted you to write a book about it? I learned about the story at the heart of this book, which is how... Arthur Conan Doyle, in real life, used Holmesian detective skills to reinvestigate the wrongful conviction of an innocent man for a 1908 murder in Glasgow, Scotland. And every biography of Conan Doyle, and there are, of course, dozens of them, mentions this story. It's the Oscar Slater case. Oscar Slater was the innocent Jewish immigrant. He was a German Jew. He'd come to Scotland in the early 20th century. And for various reasons having to do with things we know well, like anti-Semitism, xenophobia, efforts to cap immigration, after a rich old lady was murdered in her Glasgow home, in 1908, Glasgow officials, who were under great pressure to get a suspect and close the case, homed in on Slater, knowing full well he was innocent. They railroaded him, tried him, very nearly hanged him, and wound up condemning him to 
a life at hard labor in a draconian Dickensian prison in the north of Scotland where he was literally breaking up immense granite blocks in the prison quarry. He languished in that prison for nearly 20 years before Conan Doyle was able to help get him out. Now, I first encountered this story 30 years ago. As I said, every Conan Doyle bio mentions the Oscar Slater case and has anywhere from a paragraph to a chapter on it. 30 years ago, a little more actually, I had just come to New York after grad school. I was working at an uninspiring entry-level job in book publishing. I should hasten to add, not at Random House, the publisher of this book. And what I had brought with me to read on my morning commute on the subway in New York was John Dixon Carr's 1949 biography of Conan Doyle. And indeed, toward the end of the book, Carr mentions almost in passing, oh, by the way, Sir Arthur also used his Holmesian detective skills to investigate a real-life case of murder and exonerate a wrongfully convicted man. My God, I almost dropped the book on the middle of the A-train. Here was Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of probably the most famous literary character of any kind in the world. Here he was turning real-life detective himself and in a murder case, no less. Why in the world wasn't this story better known? Now, at the time, this is in the early 80s, I was not a writer, I didn't have a career, I hadn't even been to journalism school yet, so I, sadly, although I was captivated by this story, I was not in a position to do anything about it. So I filed it away in that back recess of my head that Holmes himself calls the brain attic, and there it stayed for over 30 years. Fast forward to 2013 when my previous nonfiction book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, came out and I was looking around for what to write about next. I went into my brain attic and there was the Oscar Slater case. And of course now I have the great advantage of the internet. I did a little quick research and found to my amazed delight that there had still been no American book on the case in the intervening 30 years, and there were precious few in Britain. This case was one of those amazing stories that just somehow slipped into a crevice in history. So with Conan Doyle for the defense, I have had the great privilege of getting to pry the story out of that crevice and put it out there for all to see. It's an amazing story, just fascinating. And what really struck me as I was reading your book was the contrast in character between the two main figures. How different they are, yet how they are both seeking the same justice. How they come together and then fall apart. It's it's so interesting. One of the things that Conan Doyle was, he was kind of Victorian man in mostly the best ways, and he had this tremendous sense of the importance of honor and fair play and all of those things that the Victorian ethos held dear. Everybody remembers Conan Doyle today for Sherlock Holmes, as well he should be, but what is less well-remembered that I really wanted this book to remind people of was that he was equally a social crusader. What's interesting, where Conan Doyle and Oscar Slater have similar biographies is they were both foreigners in the English milieu. Conan Doyle was actually Scottish and to the end of his life retained an Edinburgh accent that you could cut with a knife. They both grew up desperately poor, I mean really just in the thick of poverty, and they were both in English Edwardian society marginalized for their religion. Slater because he was Jewish, Conan Doyle because he was a Roman Catholic. So although their lives played out very differently, they both knew what it was like to be marginalized. And I think that's one of the things 
that in Conan Doyle's background that made him so compassionate and such a champion of the underdog throughout his life. So I'd like to start where you start in your book, the horrific murder of Marion Gilchrist. It happened on December 2nd of 1901. Can you tell us the circumstances of the murder, who she was, how she was found? Absolutely. Marion Gilchrist was a very wealthy Scotswoman from a proud Glasgow family. She was 82, just a few weeks shy of 83 at the end of 1908. She had never married, always lived alone, what would have been called then a spinster. Uh, The only person she lived with was her maid, a uh, young Scotswoman named Helen Lambie. And on the night of December 21st, 1908, as Ms. Gilchrist sat by her drawing room fire reading a magazine in her elegant Glasgow apartment, the maid, Helen Lambie, went out, per her custom, to buy the evening paper for her mistress. She was gone only about 10 minutes, from 7 p.m. to about 7.10. During that 10-minute window, someone and to this day we don't know who it was, a man, we presume, came to Miss Gilchrist's door. There was no sign of forced entry, so we can safely assume it was someone she knew. And all that we do know is when the maid, Helen, came back from her errand, she saw a man hurriedly leaving the flat and tearing downstairs. She later told told the police she didn't recognize the man. She came in to find her mistress, Marion Gilchrist, bludgeoned so savagely that the life was ebbing out of her, and Miss Gilchrist died moments later. The dining room was awash in blood. Uh, It was a very, very sudden, passionate, intense, violent, brutal crime. It wasn't a, a quiet death either. The neighbors below uh, the Adams family heard the murder as it was happening. And one of the family members went up to the door, stood at it with Helen Lambie, and watched this man kind of slither past them, right? That's right. Marion Gilchrist was a very uh, eccentric, wealthy woman. She had a massive collection of jewelry, a collection that in today's American money would be worth about half a million dollars. But instead of putting it in her safe, which I guess she thought would be the obvious place a burglar would look, she secreted jewelry in weird places all around the apartment. She'd pin things behind curtains. She'd slip things into pockets of dresses in the wardrobe put things under carpets, you name it. She was clearly very, very fearful of being robbed. So indeed, she arranged with her downstairs neighbors, a family named Adams, that if she were ever in distress, she would knock on the floor three times. And on the night of December 21st, 1908, just after seven, the Adams heard first a loud thud, and then they heard bang, bang, bang on the floor And the uh, man from downstairs named Arthur Adams, a man in his 40s, came with the maid, Helen, returning from her errand. And indeed, they both saw this man, who was a stranger to both of them, sail coolly out of the apartment and run down the stairs. Uh, When the police came, they asked the maid if anything was missing from the apartment. She said the only thing that was missing was a crescent-shaped brooch, shape of a beautiful, slender crescent moon set along its length with diamonds. And it was that diamond brooch, woe-betide Oscar Slater, that coincidentally led the Glasgow police right to him. And I think it's important to note as well that she was not the type of person that would just let anyone into her home. She had three locks on her door. 
she did indeed, and there's a there's an image in the book of this old, you know, Victorian building with her front door photographed from the inside. You can very clearly see the three locks, and she had all sorts of precautions for robbery. One of uh, the points that Conan Doyle made when he started reviewing the case was there was absolutely no point of connection that had ever been established between the old lady, Miss Gilchrist, and Oscar Slater. They were clearly strangers to each other, and it was also well established that Miss Gilchrist would never let a stranger into her home. Yet, because of the unfortunate coincidence that Oscar Slater had pawned a crescent-shaped diamond brooch around that time, and early in the investigation, the police got a tip that he was trying to sell the pawn ticket for that brooch, they closed in on him. It turned out that he had pawned the brooch over a month before the murder, and when they brought Ms. Gilchrist's maid to the pawn shop to look at Oscar Slater's brooch, she immediately said, oh, that's the wrong one. Uh, one of the brooches had one row of diamonds, and the other one had three rows. So they knew, the police knew within five days of the murder that Oscar Slater was not their man, but fueled by anti-Semitism, xenophobia, class bias, he was, Slater was reputed to earn his living as a gambler. He kind of lived on the margins of society. So fueled by all those things and under great pressure to close the case to get a collar, as they say on Law and Order, they pursued him anyway, and they pursued him almost into the grave. He was this kind of dandified ne'er-do-well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair description. A, a good guy. He, he earned his living in billiard rooms and playing cards. He was certainly the kind of person that horrified uh, Edwardian bourgeois society, but that didn't make him a murderer. Right, right. And he wasn't violent at all. Uh, he had committed uh, petty crimes, right? But but nothing even remotely violent. Not even petty crimes. He wasn't a criminal. He had one conviction uh, for something like a barroom brawl, you know, very early in his time in Britain. So and and heaven knows he would hardly be the only man in Britain to have been convicted and find a tiny bit of money for a barroom brawl. So he really did not have a criminal history. But once the police and then the crown prosecutors set their sights on Slater, it was pretty much all over for him. So as you mentioned in your book, there are a lot of coincidental circumstances that line up to point to him initially as a suspect, right? He was seen by an eyewitness near the scene of the crime, walking to his apartment, which wasn't far away at all. He had the misfortune, uh, Oscar Slater had the misfortune to have rented an apartment in Glasgow uh, that's pretty much around the corner from the crime scene. And I have done that walk many times. You can walk between Slater's flat and Ms. Gilchrist's flat in less than five minutes. So, again, that was a coincidence that worked very, very cruelly against him. Another coincidence, uh, and this is just preposterous logic on the point, part of the police, as Conan Doyle would later point out, uh, they knew that... Miss Gilchrist had been bludgeoned to death, but there was no obvious weapon left lying around at the crime scene. So they didn't know exactly what she had been bludgeoned with. Woe betide Oscar Slater again, maybe a few weeks before when he had moved into this new flat around the corner and wanted to do some home repairs to fix it up. He'd gone to a local hardware store and bought a set of tools that included a hammer. So the Glasgow police said, okay, this man owns a hammer, as 
Conan Doyle rather astringently pointed out in his critique of a case, what household in the land can be said to be devoid of a hammer? But the fact that Slater owned it was damning enough. They conveniently overlooked the fact that it was basically a tack hammer. Uh, as Conan Doyle said, it was so light and frail, it could not possibly have produced the devastating injuries that killed Marion Gilchrist. And there was blood found on a chair leg. Right. What the first doctor called to the scene, who was very, very acute, uh, hypothesized, he was too good a man of science to state it as a definitive conclusion, but he made the very strong hypothesis that the assailant, whoever he was, had bludgeoned Ms. Gilchrist to death with the leg of one of these heavy Victorian chairs that were in her dining room where she was killed. And the fact that the chair seat would have come between him and his victim would have also protected him to a large extent from blood splatter. Both the maid and the downstairs neighbor said they did not notice any blood on this mysterious man they saw leaving her apartment. However, the po- the police and prosecutors who were so intent on convicting Slater basically suppressed any contradictory or outright exculpatory evidence, so they never called to the witness stand this doctor who had the very educated conjecture about the chair. They never called a neighbor who had knew Slater well by sight. He was a local greengrocer, and he had seen Slater standing calmly on his own stoop, smoking just minutes after he was supposed to have committed this dastardly murder and been weaving through the streets of Glasgow in a frenzy to try to evade the police. And there were many, many other instances which Conan Doyle helped uncover of exculpatory evidence that was suppressed, not only that, but of inculpatory evidence that was suborned. Basically, the police and prosecutors coached witnesses for their side, and they even suborned perjury. It was a really, really terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice. Another unfortunate coincidence for Mr. Slater was that he had plans to leave Scotland and sail to America. That's right, and here the the story transfers to our country and to my own city, to New York. Um, Scotland at the time, late 1908, was in the middle of an economic depression, and as I say in the book, even for gamblers, times were hard. So Slater, who had lived all over Europe and had lived in New York before and had made friends in America, happened to get a letter from one of his American friends saying, come on over and join me in business. So he made plans with his mistress, his young French mistress who was reputed to be a prostitute. That was another strike against him. Um, With his mistress, he bought two tickets on the Lusitania. And yes, it's that Lusitania, the boat that would be sunk by a U-boat a few years later. He sailed on the Lusitania from England to New York on this long planned trip to start a new life in America. But of course, to the Glasgow police, because Slater left town a few days after the murder, so they said, aha, this is the flight from justice of a guilty man. And so they literally cabled the New York police, had him arrested, The minute he sailed into New York Harbor, the police found the pawn ticket for the non-matching diamond brooch in Slater's luggage. And with three witnesses, including the maid, the downstairs neighbor, and another little local girl who claimed she'd seen Slater frantically running out of Miss Gilchrist's building, the police bundled them up, they put them all on a boat to New York, and they testified, in some cases with perjured testimony, at the hearing to extradite Slater back to Scotland. And he eventually did go back to Scotland, and there in Edinburgh he stood trial. And there is some suggestion that the local police knew he was leaving for America 
and probably could have stopped him, but thought that they could build a stronger case by declaring him a fugitive. That's exactly right, and that was not uncovered until the late 1920s. Slater's trial took place in in May of 1909, and he was packed off to this prison at Peterhead in northern Scotland, way up above Aberdeen, and he was packed off there in the summer of 1909 after his conviction. His sent, he was not released from jail until the end of 1927. So he spent 18 and a half years at hard labor in this draconian prison. And toward the end of that time, uh, Conan Doyle and a British journalist named William Park, whom, whose work Conan Doyle underwrote, found uh, among much other police malfeasance that yes, they could have arrested or at least questioned Slater before he sailed away on the Lusitania. But as you say, they wanted to make it look like this dramatic flight from justice. So they let him go and only caught him when he'd arrived on the other side in New York. I'd love to hear more about the trial. He's brought in, arrested, and at this point, public sentiment really is against him. This idea of an immigrant Jew murdering a very rich native Scottish woman was was incredibly sensational at the time. Absolutely. The trial was a media sensation, not only in Scotland and in Britain, but around the world. The New York Times covered it. Um, so it was a huge thing. And for just the reasons you say, that you have this outsider person, someone who is very much a capital O other, assaulting, assailing, alleged to have killed this very respectable pillar of wasp bourgeois Edwardian society. And indeed, some of the Scottish papers that covered the trial went to great lengths to point out how incongruous such a brutal crime was in the genteel part of town in which Marion Gilchrist lived. The very strong implication was her social standing, her waspness, if you will, was meant to have protected her from all of these kinds of dark invasions. And it was coming at a period when uh, a great many poor European Jews were fleeing Eastern and Central Europe, fleeing poverty, fleeing pogroms, settling in Britain, and there was, surprise, surprise, a huge corresponding uptick in British anti-Semitism. So Oscar Slater was very much the victim of police and prosecutorial malfeasance. He was also very much a victim of his times. Yeah. So it was quite infuriating reading the trial portion of your book the reliance by the prosecution of these witnesses, the coercion the police used to force various witnesses to match their descriptions of Slater. Could you expand a little on this? The police and prosecutors really staged the trial at this piece of theater, and anything that might have exonerated Slater, they simply suppressed, and they hedged what they knew to be a weak circumstantial case by getting at least a couple of witnesses to lie. Um, there was this little neighbor girl, a 14-year-old girl named Mary Barrowman, who uh, shortly after the crime went to the police with her mother, and the mother said, oh, my daughter saw a man running out of Miss Gilchrist's building on the night of the murder, and indeed, little Mary was pressed to identify that man of Oscar Slater, which she did first at the extradition hearing in New York and later in court. Similar things were done with other witnesses. So the, the trial only lasted for four days. And to Americans, uh, and even to people in England, the Scottish criminal trial system is very, very unusual. It's different 
from the system that exists even today in England or Wales. Uh, first of all, there are 15 people on a jury. Second, a majority verdict is permissible. And these are all things that were instituted centuries ago to try and preempt hung juries. But they can also really, really work against a defendant. And that's what happened in the Slater case. The third thing that's unusual to us about the Scottish criminal jury system is that three verdicts are possible. Guilty, not guilty, and a third verdict, which sounds really strange to us, called not proven. And uh, Scottish criminal lawyers, even today, joke that not proven really means not guilty and don't do it again. And because of the jurors being able to choose one of three verdicts rather than the two that we are accustomed to, and because majority verdicts are permitted rather than unanimous ones, which we're accustomed to here, those things all came together to sink Oscar Slater. Do you think Slater was ably defended by his lawyer? I suspect not. He had a lawyer who seemed well-meaning but rather ineffectual. And, uh, for instance, the thing that outrages me the most is the lawyer, in examining a member of the police, actually elicited from this guy on the witness stand, yes, we knew very quickly that the Broj Oscar Slater pawned was not Ms. Gilchrist's missing brooch. Well, if you're any kind of criminal defense attorney worth your salt, your very next question should be, then why the hell did you guys pursue my client anyway? And for reasons that we shall never know, this ineffectual defense attorney never asked that essential follow-up question. So again, uh, the fact that the cops knew Slater wasn't their guy, but went after him anyway, which should have been the highlight of anybody's criminal defense, uh, kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was really tragic. How long did it take for the jury to determine a verdict? 70 minutes. 70 minutes, and the verdict was death. And the judge, per tradition, donned the black cap and said in this, you know, extraordinary Edwardian language, you know, the accused Oscar Slater shall be taken from the prison and by the hands of the common executioner hanged by the neck upon a gibbet until he be dead. It's absolutely chilling. Uh, when I lecture about the book, I actually have a big PowerPoint slide of the court stenographer's transcript of that line, hang by the neck upon a gibbet until he be dead. And I put it up and the audience goes, <gasps> it, it's just, it, it makes your hair stand up. Um, and so he was sentenced to death. He was going to be hanged in three weeks. He came within 48 hours of that sentence being carried out. He could literally hear the gallows being hammered together outside his cell. And he had, in a, some, a detail that just breaks my heart, he had made arrangements for his own burial. He asked to be buried with a photograph of his beloved parents, you know, back in their little hamlet in Germany. There was, however, enough public unease about the case, enough public doubt, and enough public awareness that the police and prosecutorial case was not as strong as it was made out to be, that a public petition was gotten up in Slater's favor. It garnered 20,000 signatures. And here's the truly remarkable thing. You know, all of the things we take for granted in our criminal justice system, for all its problems, uh, it has some extraordinary benefits. One of those things is the right of appeal. That did not exist. There was no court of criminal appeals in Scotland at that time, or for that matter, in England. So if you got a death sentence, you were pretty sure you were going to die. There was one person in the country who had the power to commute a man's death sentence, and that was King Edward VII. The petition 
was taken by Slater's lawyers all the way up to him, and remarkably, with 48 hours to go before Slater was to be hanged, Edward VII commuted Slater's sentence to life at hard labor, and off he went to this prison way up north. And there he languished for 18 and a half years. Uh, Conan Doyle first took up the case in about 1912, about three years after Slater's conviction, at the behest of Slater's lawyers. He did an intensive reinvestigation using Holmesian techniques and published a scathing monograph about the case in which he indicted police and prosecutors, uncovered new evidence, posited for the first time a reasonable motive for the killing of Miss Gilchrist by whoever. Uh, there had been one of the great weaknesses of the case against Slater is there was no discernible motive for this man who didn't even know her. Why would he kill her? Conan Doyle did all that, but when his book on this case came out in 1912, it did not sway public sentiment in the way that he had hoped. I think it was just a little too soon. The case, which was kind of the O.J. case of its day, was such a sensation. It was still very raw, very fresh in public memory. And so Conan Doyle, who would re-enter the case from time to time, got involved with other projects. He was still writing the Sherlock Holmes stories. He had other crusades for social justice to fight. He never forgot about Slater. One day in 1925, Slater has been in prison for over a decade and a half, one of Slater's prison buddies, a fellow convict named William Gordon, was paroled from Peterhead Prison, way up north in Scotland. As I say in the book, uh, William Gordon probably would have passed into history without creating so much as a ripple, except for one invaluable trait. He wore dentures, and curled up beneath his dentures, hidden in his gums, the day he was paroled, was an urgent note from Slater. It had been wrapped, written in pencil on a piece of brown tissue paper, and then wrapped in a piece of glazed paper from the prison bookbinding shop to keep it dry under his teeth. He got out of prison without the guards finding it, even though they searched everywhere else. It didn't occur to them to search his teeth. And the message said, go see Conan Doyle, which William Gordon did. And Conan Doyle's grown son remembered his coming to the house. And that, in 1925, moved Conan Doyle to take up the case one last time. And this time, he prevailed. And Slater was released from prison at the end of 1927. I do want to go back um, to to the change in Slater's sentence from death to life in prison. It's odd, and you point this out. What's the real motive in letting him live? Either he's guilty or he's not. Why the sudden commutation? Right. I I can only conjecture that it's sort of a tacit admission on the part of the Scottish judicial system that they've made a horrible mistake, but they have to save face by at least keeping the guy in prison. Because to admit that Slater absolutely didn't belong even in prison, you know, much less on the gallows, would be to have uncovered or to at least have to deal with the threat of having uncovered all of this unethical, in fact, uh, criminal behavior on the part of police and the Crown prosecutors. That they could not risk. One reason that Conan Doyle and his associates were able to prevail in exonerating Slater in the late 1920s, where they hadn't been in 1912, 1914, was that most of the principals who committed malfeasance in the original case against Slater were by this time dead. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Slater had the unfortunate experience of serving time in two of the more notorious prisons of the time, the Tombs in New York City, where he was held for a short time while waiting to get extradited back to Scotland, and Peterhead in Scotland, where his term was, of course, far longer. You document his time in Peterhead and how he was able to handle the mental and physical anguish he suffered while still keeping his sense of humor. One of the greatest treasures I found in researching the book, and I spent, uh, because the crime was committed in Glasgow, and then they had a change of venue, so the trial took place in Edinburgh. So there are major archives about the case in both cities. And in 2014, when I was working on the book, I spent a week in the archives of each city and literally had thousands and thousands of pages of documents uh, come from their reprographics departments months later. Uh, I have a stack of jiffy bags that uh, reached up about four feet high full of these treasures, uh, trial transcripts, but um, declassified government memoranda about the case, um, records of police interviews with witnesses, and then uh, a lot of Conan Doyle's correspondence about the case, but the greatest treasure of all was that because Slater was in prison and in a place where everything one does is monitored, every letter he sent and received over 18 and a half years had been kept on file, copies kept on file. And so I actually got to see 
really what this man was like, because in the few British accounts of the case, ironically, Oscar Slater is almost absent. He's sort of a cipher at the center of his own story. And so I'm very pleased that this book was able to kind of flesh out the man. And yes, he was a marginal character in some ways. He was a gambler, but he was a charming rogue. He adored his family. They adored him. There are these incredibly moving letters. His parents were very poor in this little town in Germany. His mother would write, you know, a thousand kisses to my innocent child from your mother who loves you with her last breath. It was his fervent wish that he would get out of jail and get to see his parents as they were growing older. He never did. In fact, he was one of the most gut-wrenching things that I found, and it's in the book, are he letters because he was in prison so long. First, his mother is writing, you know, as often as she can for years. Then suddenly his grown sisters take over, and we learn that his parents have died. He's in prison so long that eventually the third generation starts. His sister's children start writing to him, two two of his nieces. That, to me, was one of the most dramatic and evocative ways in which the passage of time could be shown with this bulging file of these extraordinary letters. So going back to those first days of the investigation, when the, the police realized very early on that the evidence that they had was not really evidence at all, but still insisted on pursuing Slater as their primary suspect. The Glasgow Police Department, what was their motivation in doing this? Was it just to get it solved as soon as possible? Or was there something deeper and darker to it all? Well, it was partly because it was a hugely high-profile case and they were under great pressure to find a suspect and get a conviction. Uh, you know, rich old ladies murdered in a part of town where that's not supposed to happen. So they were under great pressure. But as you say, there was almost certainly something else going on. At the time of Marion Gilchrist's murder, it happened that Oscar Slater was already known to the Glasgow police, not for any crime he committed, but for things they thought he might do. Again, he was marginal. He was a Jew in an age of rising anti-Semitism, an immigrant in an age of rising xenophobia, and just as we see today, increasing legislative efforts to put caps on immigration. As I said in the introduction to the book, little did I know when I started work on this in 2013 how relevant it would be to our own time. So all of those things have to be factored into the police stance towards Slater. Uh, one of the things that Slater was tarred with, although it was never proved, his mistress was very, indeed very likely a prostitute, a young woman named Madame Junio. And so Slater, by extension, was tarred with being her pimp. And in fact, if you read the history of Jewish immigration to Britain in that period, that was a slur with which a great many immigrant Jewish men were tarred with. Slater happened to have been one. There was absolutely no evidence that he ever was a pimp, but even before the murder, in the early fall of 1908, before this late December murder, the Glasgow police were monitoring him in the hope of building enough of a case against him to have him arrested as a pimp. And in the decorous diction of the times, the charge that they wanted to press was called immoral housekeeping. And as I say when I lecture, I've been guilty of that myself, though not in quite the same way that they meant. And so here they have this immigrant Jewish gambler, suspected, alleged pimp. They want to run him out of town, and lo and behold, fortune hands them the murder of a rich old lady a few months later, right around the corner from this guy. And so they really do try and kill two birds with one stone. And, of course, they very nearly kill Oscar Slater in the process. As I say in the book, um, their thinking seems to have been, 
Oscar Slater might as well have been hanged for a sheep as for a lamb, and of course, that's very nearly what happened. So there was one Glasgow police detective that from the beginning of his involvement in the case was honest, a seeker of the truth, a man named John Thompson Trench. That's right. And as often happens in these wrongful conviction narratives, there's one heroic cop who believes in the innocence of the accused person and it usually cost him his career and that's exactly what happened in this story. There was a very, very well-liked, very good and very successful police detective named Lieutenant or Lieutenant as they would say there, John Trench. And he was involved only tangentially in the initial investigation of Miss Gilchrist's death. But uh, even that was enough to give him profound doubts that Slater was the right man to have apprehended. And so he kept a dossier. He copied certain files. And um, he found out that the police had suppressed all sorts of exculpatory evidence, one of the uh, most sensational things he found out was that Helen Lambie, the maid, when she was first interviewed by the police immediately after the murder, said not only that this man came sailing out the door of her mistress's flat, but that she recognized him and that he wasn't Slater. It was someone she knew. This person, who was a relative of Miss Gilchrist, was a very highly placed member of Glasgow society, and it's quite clear from documents that Conan Doyle helped unearth in later investigations, it's quite clear that this prominent family that he belonged to pulled strings at the highest level to have his name suppressed. And so very quickly, the maid, Helen, changed her tune and said, first she said, oh, I don't recognize him at all, and then she said, I do recognize him, and it's Oscar Slater. So that story went through several permutations at the behest of police and prosecutors. John Thompson Trent was uncovering all kinds of stuff like this, the suppression of exculpatory evidence, the subordination of perjury that would incriminate Oscar Slater, and needless to say, he was run off the force, and it probably very nearly killed him. He died young, he died... At only 50, uh, the police, after they ran him off the force, put him on trial uh, for trumped-up charges relating to another case, which fortunately was thrown out of court. But um, they pretty much destroyed not only his career, but the man himself. All right. I'd like to ask you about motive. There was obviously a motive for the beating death of Marion Gilchrist, what was it? What did Conan Doyle believe it was? And what do you believe it was? Well, Conan Doyle, uh, of course, with Holmes in Acumen, was the first person to advance a truly plausible theory of the crime and of the motive for the crime, and I agree with him. Because when you have a rich old lady, she's murdered in her apartment, the police said, oh, the murder motive was robbery. Slater had clearly come there to rob her, and in a fit of anger, he killed her instead. Well, if the motive is robbery, and this woman has a fortune in jewelry secreted around her house, why is almost nothing missing? So that never washed with Conan Doyle. And one of the things that was found at the crime scene in one of the bedrooms of her flat, uh, there was a box, a wooden box that had been wrenched open, and it had been full of papers. And the paper, the box, and the papers spilling out of it were scattered on the floor of the room. Apart from the diamond brooch, nothing else was disturbed in that room. But there was this box of papers scattered on the floor, and again, the police conveniently ignored that because it didn't square with their script of robbery and Slater's being the doer, Conan Doyle said, apart from robbery, what could motivate that kind of search and that kind of fury? And he said, clearly, the assailant was after the papers. And 
this was a wealthy woman of great age, it very likely had to do with someone frantically searching for a will. And indeed, it came out, and these are all on file in the appropriate Scottish courts, that a very short time before her death, Marion Gilchrist had changed her will. She had a considerable inherited fortune, and whereas earlier wills had left it to various members of her family, the new will made just weeks before her murder, she changed all that and left the bulk of her fortune to a former maid uh, with whom she had remained on very cordial terms. So suddenly, her family was shut out of the will. And Helen Lambie seems to be the key to all of this. She, she knew something. It is very clear. It was clear to Conan Doyle and to the few other people investigating the case on Slater's behalf. It's absolutely clear to me that Helen Lambie, who lived to be, uh, until 1960, went to her grave knowing far more than she could ever be persuaded to tell. It's quite clear since within minutes of the murder, she told not only the police, but a niece of Miss Gilchrist's to whom she ran. The niece lived nearby. She said, oh, my mistress is dead in the dining room and I saw the man who did it. She names the man and it is this member of the extended family and the niece, who is also a very proper Edwardian bourgeois, says, oh, you must never say that. A murder in the family is bad enough, but a murderer in the family is a thousand times worse. You know, these, all of these people had the post-Victorian obsession with reputation and never having your reputation be besmirched. And they had money, they were connected, they had some degree of power in the community, so they were able to suppress all of that stuff that would have been damaging to their family. Oscar Slater, um, as you've said, things eventually turned in his favor. But in the meantime, there was a hearing which was kind of a travesty, and, and Slater wasn't allowed to testify on his own behalf. No. In um, Conan Doyle first started looking into the case in 1912. He publishes his book, and nothing really happens. Two years later, in 1914, Lieutenant Trench comes forward with the evidence and the documents that he has been husbanding from the original investigation. And so at that point, there is a re-inquiry into the case, partly at Conan Doyle's urging, but it, as you say, it's held in secret. Um, Slater is not allowed to testify in his own defense. They rake trench over the coals and you know impugn all his testimony and it is indeed a farce and that basically is the beginning of the end for John Tom Thompson Trench. He's run off the force very shortly after that. Uh, then nothing much happens until the late 1920s when uh, William Gordon smuggles the note to Conan Doyle under his dentures. Conan Doyle takes up the case again. Uh, after Slater is released from prison in late 1927. The next year, there is a hearing at which Slater is present, but again does not speak on his own behalf. There is a hearing to get his conviction voided or quashed, as they say in Scottish law. And um, that very nearly doesn't go right either, but at the end, Slater's conviction is quashed on a technicality. And one would think, well, that would be the relatively happy ending to the story, but no. When I was researching the case in the files in one of these Scottish archives, I spent a whole week there, and on the next to the last day, there's one more file left in the box, because they're in chronological order from 1908, when the murder is done, to the late 1920s. There's one file that had a heading on it that took my breath away, not in a good way. It says, Conan Doyle v. Slater. Conan Doyle, in the late 1920s, after 
Slater is released and after the conviction is quashed, starts to sue Slater to recover some of the expenses that he's incurred in the investigation and the rehearing of the case. Not for on his own behalf, he's wealthy, but because he had promised to reimburse other people who had contributed to Slater's legal defense. And being a post-Victorian man of honor, Conan Doyle realizes that Slater, who has now gotten reparations money from the British government, owes his supporters reimbursement. Slater, of course, who is has been poor all his life, has been in prison for almost 20 years, and has you know, gotten out of prison by the skin of his teeth, doesn't see it that way. And so our hope for happy ending doesn't quite materialize it. Instead, between these two principals who both came from poverty yet wound up living such different lives, uh, wind up having a few that plays out in public in letters and interviews that the two of them give to various British papers. In the end, it's reconciled amicably, but as I say in the book, the really painful thing for me about this case is that although Conan Doyle supported Slater to the last as a matter of principle, as a matter of social justice, he never really understood him. Yeah, it really is kind of heartbreaking to see what their correspondence devolves into. When Slater gets out of jail, initially it's very positive. Mm-hmm. Right, and you want them to go off into the sunset together and you know, real life just doesn't work out that way. Yeah, you want you want them to, to meet and get a drink. Oh, and then things change. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was Doyle who suggested to Slater that he asked for compensation. Slater eventually gets a large chunk of money, and Doyle asks only to be repaid for his expenses that he'd spent in pursuing Slater's release. And Slater refused, claiming Doyle had already made money on him from his book. Right. Right. It, 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 Oscar Slater was not a murderer, but he was hot-headed. And, you know, 18 years in at hard labor in a brutal prison are, of course, going to mess with your head. So he was in a pretty bad state at, at this point. And there are times in prison, which we see in the letters, when it's very clear he is dancing right on the edge of madness. It's It's devastating, but not surprising, given the conditions he had to live under. And so, of course, all of that anger and all of that pain and all of that kind of mental volatility he brought to these, you know, last couple of years uh, when he was out but feuding with Conan Doyle. Happily, it was resolved more or less amicably. It was Conan Doyle's last crusade in a criminal case. Um, All of this was resolved by about 1929, Conan Doyle died in 1930. Now, here's the thing that just is a punch in the chest. Uh, Oscar Slater, after this case, was a man without a country. Um, The British very much would have liked to deport him back to Germany, but as they learned in the research, and there are confidential memos in the files from the British Home Office on this, At that time, a German who had lived out of Germany for 10 years or more, which Slater obviously had, he'd been in prison, lost his citizenship. So although they freed Slater and they exonerated him, they found they couldn't get rid of him. So ironically, he stayed in Glasgow to the end of his life. Uh, He married a Scotswoman uh, who was considerably younger. They were apparently very happy together. And he died in his bed in his 70s of illness, in 1948. Had he gone back to Germany, he might well not have been so lucky because his beloved family, his sisters, whose letters we have in the book, were all rounded up from their town in Germany during the war, and almost nobody survived. So the sublime irony is this whole bitter, brutal, two-decade-long false conviction and everything that followed in the end may have saved his life. So it's really neat how you use passages from some of the Holmes stories 
and weave them into your nonfiction narrative. Was that enjoyable, uh, getting to read Doyle's Holmes stories as part of your research? Well, I knew I would have to reread the whole canon uh, going into the book, so I did with great pleasure over about a year or so. I just had it with me everywhere. I took it with me on the, my trips to Scotland and, you know, read it on the plane. I had, I was on appropriately jury duty around that time and so would, you know, read it in the, the jury assembly room when I was waiting to see if I would be called for a case. So the, that, um, uh, paperback edition of the complete home stories was my constant companion for quite a while and, I quoted from the stories to illustrate certain points. Uh, one of the fascinating things for me is uh, Conan Doyle, of course, was a doctor. He originally trained as a doctor before making it as a writer. And one of the things I became aware of and tried to point up in the book is that medical diagnosis and criminal investigation are very much two sides of the same coin. Often they both start with a body. You're looking for some sort of elusive culprit, either a disease or injury in the case of medicine, a perpetrator in the case of criminal detection, and you go through a series of diagnostic steps, homing in ever closer. You know, there are these, it's a kind of intellectual treasure hunt, a heuristic process, if you will. And so there was probably no one in the world better equipped to take on a case like this than a doctor who was also a writer of detective stories. And so I do quote from the home stories to show uh, how they illustrate these various diagnostic processes at work, uh, whether it's Holmes using them in a fictional case or Conan Doyle using them first in medicine and then later in his investigation of real-life crimes because he investigated others besides the Slater case. The Slater case was the biggest and the longest and the most important, but as I talk about in the book, there were others. He had this whole life in true crime that uh, many people don't know about today. Well, this has been excellent. So this book is uh, officially out now in paperback. Yes, it is. It came out in paperback just a couple of weeks ago. This has really been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Again, I've been speaking to Margalit Fox. She is the author of Conan Doyle for the Defense, the true story of a sensational British murder, a quest for justice, and the world's most famous detective writer. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.